Welcome to Swift Unscripted. Swift podcasts give you, the listener, the opportunity to hear the inside story and be part of the conversation about all means all with leaders in the field of inclusive education and school-wide transformation. We are pleased to present part two of Dan Habib's conversation with Susan Shapiro on inclusive education. If you haven't listened to part one, you can find it on swiftschools.org by clicking on the Swift Unscripted tab. Now, let's listen to the rest of their conversation. So one of the big challenges I think a lot of educators and people in the field have is a differentiating between differentiated instruction and universal design for learning. And I'm sure if you ask 10 different people who are familiar with both that question, you'd probably get 10 different answers. So I'm just going to ask you to take a stab um, as best you can at, at describing how you might differentiate between um, DI, differentiated instruction, and UDL. Um, I have spent a long time trying to answer that question myself. I've sought out professional development opportunities and sat like a researcher trying to listen. Mm -hmm. Um, And I guess I've gotten to the point where I I wonder if maybe we don't need to um, compare and contrast those things at all. Um, Hmm. I'm not sure they're different enough um, Mm -hmm. that it matters. and I certainly haven't found any place where they rub. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, you know, the way that differentiation is sometimes implemented is a response to children failing or feeling bored. Mm-hmm. So if a teacher delivers instruction, doesn't make, um, doesn't differentiate in any way, sees kids failing, struggling, getting frustrated, getting bored, and then responds with, different instruction. Mm-hmm. Um, I think sometimes that sneaks under the fence and is called differentiation, but I think at its real, um, in its truest, purest design, differentiation is just as much of a proactive response as universal design for learning. Mm-hmm. Universal design for learning is that architectural concept, um, and I for ask forgiveness to the architects um, as I try to explain that part of it. But, you know, that's the, the notion of I designed this building and I have it's very, it's very symmetrical and it has these windows and these pillars and these arches. And now you want me to build a ramp, right? Mm-hmm. That's kind of going to be awkward. Yeah. And they're going to have to, a person's going to have to come in the back or the side. Um, could we just, like, realize that in every building somebody who uses a wheelchair might want to enter Mm -hmm. and build that into the original blueprint um, build that ramp right in thinking about that and moving that to learning is how I understand universal design for learning so while it may be necessary for a teacher who hasn't had a child who uses an augmentative communication system to make some changes to the way that assessment, instruction and the environment is set up for your son right, for Mm -hmm. Samuel um, there are other ways that we can um, build learning designs that are uh, anticipatory, right? We, mm-hmm. we know that we're going to have children um, who do not speak English as their first language in our classes. We know that we're going to have children um, who struggle with that piece that we just talked about, that emotional self-regulation. We know mm-hmm. we're going to have children that need um, to learn with visuals as sort of an entry point. Mm -hmm. We know that we're going to have children that need a really strong adult uh, trusted relationship as a a way of getting um, in the door. So 
in some ways, you know, we were saying um, with Universal Design for Learning, like we know that someone's going to use a wheelchair who needs to access this building. So let's build the wheelchair ramp. Let's build the multiple representations. Let's build the multiple ways of demonstrating learning. Let's build the affective supports um, right into the original design because mm-hmm. we know who's coming. It doesn't mean that we won't ever need to uh, refined that, right? So right. if you put me into a restaurant and said there's a gluten-free menu, there's a vegan menu, there's a vegetarian menu, there's really, you know, the I have some um, way that I need to be eating in the world for whatever reason mm-hmm. that is uh, not going to fall under any of those categories, yeah. right? So um, there will always be variability that needs individual attention, but not a, you know not on the side, but you know, but in the in the fold of it all. Mm-hmm. But I think that we can anticipate um, many of the ways that we um, will see variability in our learners. And if we build a, a sort of a classroom, you know, playground, knowing that it's going to shift and change, you know, mm-hmm. and sort of the more diversified the learning opportunities, the more that people can. Um, can jump in. So what's the difference? You know, I, I've asked a lot of people that question, and I guess I'm, um, I'm starting to sort of move my question to another question, mm-hmm. and, that, and that looks a little bit more teacher development. And I see differences around how people, how teachers have the intellectual capacity as they transform and, and um, become more expert in their work. Um, to differentiate, and that's of interest. Mm-hmm. One of the things I've found, um, and, and, you know, in terms of Samuel's own education, is you've got is is I'm finding that some of his teachers from the very get go have um, already created this universally designed classroom where they're where they are um, preparing, you know, presenting assignments where you can watch something, you can listen to something, you can read something, you can then produce the assignment in five different ways, you know, you can, and Samuel, has, it may not be surprising, has taken to filmmaking, and so he, so he is actually turning in short films for a lot of his assignments, which I, if I was a teacher, I'd probably much rather watch a five-minute film than read a 10-page paper, but anyway, um, so I, I'm finding that what, what we're experiencing is that when a teacher has universally designed their curriculum from the get-go, there seems to be less of a need to, to spend a lot of time differentiating because they've already kind of differentiated from the beginning. So I don't know if that's something that you, when you talk with other educators, whether you you know can convey this sense that if you if you create a UDL environment from the beginning, you're probably going to, the, the differentiation is going to be a little less taxing, a little less intense, a little less consuming. Is that is that a fair assumption or not? I think so, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I... Um, I think that, you know, in maybe 15 years ago, um, when I was working with schools on what we called sort of curriculum modification, right, we might say everybody is writing a research paper about the country they picked in Europe, but Samuel will make a film, right? Now I'm seeing us use things like tiered assignments where kids can make choices. You can either make a film or an audio tape or you can write a paper. So that's a shift that I'm seeing, which is lovely. Um, Yeah, no, I'm seeing the same thing. And I I really appreciate it when teachers do that, especially for my son who has a lot of variability in his learning styles. So, you know, kind of flipping the, the, the coin for a minute, what... What's the risk of not differentiating? You know, do you feel like there's some teachers maybe 
a little old school or whatever you want to call it, and they may not have learned to differentiate. Their school may not be doing professional development around this. Is there a danger to just basically saying, this is just not the way I do things. It's not the way I differentiate. It's not the way I, I teach. I don't differentiate. I have, I, I'm, I'm, a, you know, I'm a lecturer, and that's the way I do it. I'm not going to work in any other types of kind of experiential learning or visuals, et cetera. I was just on the way here listening to public radio, and they were talking about um, the potential of technology designers having to follow sort of a code of ethics um, that was similar to what they were sort of imagining aloud um, that physicians follow, um, the do no harm. What's it called? The, uh, the Hippocratic Oath. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, so do no harm. And could we design technology in such a way that we know that it will not do harm to the user? And I thought, wow, wouldn't that be a great thing for teachers, right, mm-hmm. to do no harm? And mm-hmm. I think it, the risk of not differentiating, and when I say differentiating or designing with learned variability in mind, I mean doing it before kids show up in that moment, right? Mm-hmm. So not saying, oh, gosh, gosh, Dan, I'm so sorry that in your old school you've written five research papers. You know, let's, um, let's give you something a little more challenging. Or, oh, Karen, I'm sorry you're not able to read that. Here, I'll help you during snack time. Um, but proactively really predicting and then planning for that variability. Um, if we don't do that, I think we run a, the risk of giving kids a doing harm and giving kids an experience of failure, of struggle, of frustration, and of boredom. Mm. And I work a lot with um, pre-service, you know, student teaching interns, Mm -hmm. and they are nervous, right? They're going out there and they're afraid that they're going to just teach everything wrong. Um, And the class is going to be wild and, you know, the world's going to end. And I often say this, um, and I've probably changed things I say over the years, but I've never changed this, that... If they go out and they teach adding fractions mm-hmm. the wrong way, right? They yeah. say if you have unlike denominators, you just add them together. You don't even worry about it, right? And all of the children do their math papers and they add all the fractions the wrong way. We could probably find most people on the street to come in and fix that in a couple of afternoons, right? You know, we got to change people's constructs about how to do that math process. But it's not a big, huge, I'm not sure if we can really do this, right? It's like, of course we can change this. We can fix this incorrect um, instruction. Right. But if we give kids um, math instruction that leads to their, the sense in a child or in children that, you know, I'm lousy at math, or math's not for me, or I can't do this, or my teacher says I'm stupid, or my friend says I'm stupid, or I'm saying I'm stupid, probably the most toxic of all, Mm. Um, or I'm so bored, right? There's nothing for me here. This is not designed for me. Um, And then said to um, the best teacher in the world, hey, we've got a little problem in the fourth grade. Um, We've got some kids who are feeling like they're really bored and frustrated and and they're just, you know, feeling like a real sense of failure. Can you come in and fix that? I don't really know that we could. Mm-hmm. I mean, we might be able to to shift it, but I don't feel confident that I can come in and work with somebody who's been given the message and had the experience of, of you know, no success, failure, over and over and over again and turn that around. So when we don't differentiate, when we don't proactively plan for supports and accommodations, for the ways that kids are different, um, then we run the risk of kids 
being bored, failing, mm-hmm. or experiencing a sense of failure, I should say. Um, and I don't know that that is something that we can make just sort of go away. Mm-hmm. I think we all know adults who are still have scar tissue around that. Yeah, um, yeah. And I think that's perhaps the harm, you know, yeah. that we may need that oath. Does that also feed into that, that lack of... Um, planning and commitment to, to differentiation, does that feed into tracking, to kind of ability tracking, where you might just naturally as a school say, well, the path of least resistance then is to just keep this group of kids together because they seem to be at a certain level and this group of kids together. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. I, um, if it was true that children came in three, you know, of three types, right, those who <laughs> did everything really easily, quickly, and those who needed this much, you know, then maybe we would have some kind of rationale for ability grouping. But they don't, and so we don't. Um, Tomlinson talks a lot about flexible grouping. And I'll often, um, with groups and professional development workshops, ask people to, you know, if you are somebody who's read, you know, five books this month, go stand in this corner. Four books this month, stand in this corner. Two, less than one, go stand over there. If you're somebody who got above 1,500 on your GREs, math section, go stand here, or mm-hmm. SATs, whatever, right? And if you're somebody who's been to three different countries, if you're somebody who's been to one country, if you've never left New Hampshire, what happens is people start to realize that, oh, I'm in the highest reading group because Dan and I have both read more than five books, right? Mm-hmm. But now it's like, Dan's in the lowest math group, and I'm in the highest country group because I've been to so many countries, and mm-hmm. I play just five different sports, or I can I have a really strong imagination. You know, so there's a, there are all different ways that kids could be quote unquote ability grouped, right? And we talk in uh, the language of differentiation about um, learners as having varied interests, um, all playing a large factor in their. Um, ability to engage um, and be successful. So interest experiences, right? Mm-hmm. Children who um, were studying something about the government in another country who have not uh, maybe experienced that, that's a difference for a high school student, right? Mm-hmm. To to know that I don't really understand what that means. I haven't, uh, I think the internet's helping us with that now. Um, so interest experiences, um, learning preferences, Many people don't like small group work, right? Many people love small group work. Those are just learning preferences. Nothing to do with right. the ways that we're smart or not smart or even what smart might mean. And then finally, um, readiness. And Tomlinson doesn't describe it as grade level. Um, are you on grade level? It's, it's just readiness is your proximity to the task, right? So... My readiness to do a podcast today is different. Even though I've done 27 years of teacher training, my readiness to do a podcast is different. I'm a little farther away from this task because I haven't talked, you know, with a microphone in the room, mm-hmm. right? Um, but my readiness to, to teach a graduate course, you know, right, is, is I'm, I have a little bit more readiness to do that. So readiness defined in that way, I think, is a, is a softer um, Definition. So, what's the right? What is, you know, Max's readiness in the fifth grade around writing? Mm-hmm. He's ready to use quotation marks in his writing, but doesn't mean that he's on grade level, below grade level, or anything. It just right. means grade level is just a, a fake sort of <laughs> useless construct. Right, right? right. It just means that's what Max is ready to learn. Next. Right. Right. That was really well explained. So, I want to talk a little bit about planning. Planning for differentiated instruction because I think that's probably. You know, I, I go to a lot of schools and do a lot of filming around the country, and I'm always in awe of great teachers. And I know, just like any profession, it doesn't—it's not just 
you know, happening because they're just inherently great or they're inherently strong what they do. They've worked hard to get to that point. It's just like an athlete. They say, oh, he's just a natural athlete. No, he probably, he or she probably worked really hard to get to that point to be that kind of athlete. So what are some um, planning, you know, strategies or planning approaches that you've uh, been able to talk to emerging teachers, you know, in pre-service education or, or as you're doing professional development, do you, do you offer any planning strategies or tips or, or approaches to differentiation? Um, I, I wouldn't say that I find strategies to be, um, maybe others, other people might answer that question with some really excellent strategies. What I mm-hmm. have found with, in terms of helping people become more, have higher, more capacity to do this work, it's more about um, refining and fine-tuning the way they see. Um, so in a lot of um, work that I do with the students at the university, I ask them to write profiles of learners. And so, and I, and they, I return them a hundred times with edits, right? Mm-hmm. And I say, make sure you're writing this in a way that the parent or the caregiver of this child um, could read it and feel like that's a great description of my child, right? So, you know, getting rid of the jargon, starting to look more developmentally, um, looking at those categories of interest, readiness, learning preference, preferences, and experiences. Mm -hmm. Um, And when we look at children through that lens, um, there's so much that we can hook onto in terms of differentiation. So if I said to you, could you uh, do me a favor and cater my sister's party on Saturday night, you know, just plan a menu and show up and she'll pay you. Um, if you ask me, what, well, what kind of food? I'd say she just likes healthy food. Mm-hmm. You know, just do something healthy, yeah. right? Well, if we're looking, if I, if I told you more, right, she wanted to be non-dairy and she wants to make sure lots of the guests are Korean, so we would like to have some of the Korean flavors. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a lot more information for you. And as you're thinking about the menu, you've got some things to hook into, mm-hmm. right? Um, if I just say healthy, it's like I don't, I don't know what, what you're going to buy at yeah. the store. So if we just describe children as he's on grade level, right, mm-hmm. which is an instinct that I see in pre-service teachers, he's like, well, what if it stops working for him in that moment? Yeah. I don't know anything about that he loves football or that he loves dance or that he loves, you know, animal stories. Yeah. So um, I think the way that we see kids, and I think that there is something about the, um, not the evolution, but the transformation of a teacher that, that does, um, it's almost like, teachers do become magical seers at some point mm-hmm. and you can just see kids more. Um, right. And, and actually, that kind of gets me into something I was going to ask you about because I, I think about something, wh- wh- when I think about a great teacher, I think, boy, they must think about every lesson and think, how is every kid in the classroom going to access this? And they must think that through before every class. I don't know if that's accurate or not, if that's true, but is there any like process that people can go through where they're where they're thinking, okay, well here's here's how I'm gonna kind of walk myself through the idea of differentiating for my class. Absolutely. I think um, we can, you know, to the best of our ability, right, knowing our kids, planning for variability, we can create our lesson plans, whether we write them in books or we write them in our mind or we follow the school. But we have a set of instructional plans. We have an assessment plan that aligns our goals and our assessments. Um, And then I think we need to pause and we need to think through that class list how is this going to go for every one of those children? And as we do that, and it's not necessarily a um, 
it's, it becomes, I think, less and less conscious um, mm-hmm. as we become more experienced. But right. in the beginning, and, and in the very, very beginning, it's actually an assignment I give, right? Mm-hmm. How would each child do before you start teaching? And teachers start to see, well, actually, he can't do that, but he could if I did this. And she wouldn't mm-hmm. be able to, but she will be able to if we change that. And so teachers start to shift and mold and change the original lesson, the original instructional plan. The learning design um, starts to represent the learners a little bit more, um, and then we deliver that instruction. Um, So I would say that in terms of steps, the first thing is to really think about um, how each child will fare in that instructional moment. Mm -hmm. Um, Think about, uh, and it may be something simple like, he's going to have a really hard time or she's going to have a really hard time sitting on the rug without having a real defined space for where to sit. Um, Or it might be she won't be able to do that math because she's been absent for a couple of weeks because she's out being with illness. Um, So thinking about how each child will fare and then asking, I think it's my favorite question, what will it take? Not can this child learn, but how can this child learn? How can this child access this learning experience? So what will it take? Will it take um, a visual organizer? Will it take less less work and more step-by-step um, uh, in a step-by-step format? Will it take working with a partner? Will it take working with an adult? Will it take some pre-teaching? Will it take some extending? Whatever. Um, and then putting those things into the original design. Mm-hmm. So how's it going to go? What will it take for everyone to be able to access and be successful? And then putting, building those things in and then beginning to teach. And I think it's that pause mm-hmm. um, that you know is really what differentiation and universal design for learning are really all about. Right. That's great. I think that's going to be really helpful for people to hear it in that way. In that way. What, I'm imagining there must be some pushback you know, from teachers um, who are thinking about, well, boy, I'm already doing a lot and enough and this is just one more thing. Do you, I mean, you go into schools a lot, you work with teachers a lot, you're doing a lot of trainings, you're working with students who are about to enter the profession. Do you, do you get some pushback on this? Do you have, do you hear concerns or fears from teachers and and how do you address that? Um, Honestly, I, um, as I said, I have spent a lifetime um, hearing pushback around um, the inclusion of students with developmental disabilities into general education settings. And, you know, I've got um, lots to say in response to, and not not so much in a pushing back way, but in the research way, right? Mm-hmm. We have research that says this stuff works and this is yeah. social justice and we're just going to do this now. It's been right. a long time. <laughs> <laughs> um, but around differentiation, I actually feel like teachers welcome the opportunity to have a, an engaged conversation um, with peers about an organization for the intellectual work of teaching because teachers know intuitively that they're doing this already but maybe in a different order right so i'm delivering whole class instruction i'm looking at student learning outcomes and in response to those learning outcomes i'm remediating i'm providing enrichment i'm i'm changing it for you i'm personalizing it for you so i'm doing those 15 things but i'm doing it in response to boredom failure and um, so forth mm-hmm. i think the the idea that we could, you know, put that pause in a different place um, is really welcomed by teachers. Mm-hmm. And um, and and in the schools that I've gone to, I can't say that there's any uh, pushback at all. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's exciting. Um, yep. 
Do you feel, is there any exercise you've done with your students in school where you try and kind of walk them through, through certain steps that kind of help get them ready for this part of the profession? Well, I've tried to get myself ready, actually, because <laughs> I'm teaching a course right now on, um, it's titled Differentiating um, Learn, uh, Instruction, Assessment, and Environment. Um, a lot about Tomlinson's work, and as I'm teaching it, I'm critically aware that I've got to make sure that I'm differentiating right. my learning. So, um, and there are, um, it is a, a, a relatively small course, so I did an, a number of students in the course, so I did an experiment the other day, and I gave them a long assignment, a semester-long assignment that had five substantial steps as the core assessment in the course. Um, and I listed the steps in a chart and then asked them for um, each step on a private piece of paper to just jot down um, what was your initial reaction when you read this step, right? You have to go into schools and you have to observe 10 children and you have to mm-hmm. write learning profiles. Um, what was your f- initial reaction? What was, um, and then the second box is, you know, what supports can you imagine you might need? Either like, I don't know anybody who works in school, so I can't get there, or mm-hmm. I'm really shy, or I don't know how to do. Um, and uh, how long do you want to have to do this? What kind of, you know, timeline are you do you want to work with? Um, and as I, for each of the steps, and as I looked, and I then I made a chart for my own teacher book mm-hmm. of all of the reactions of all of the responses of all of the students. And it was amazing to see the variability, even mm-hmm. among 10 graduate students around, I'm so excited to do, do this step, or yep. I don't know where to go. And then I wrote to each one, um, a lot of the courses online, and arranged for very individualized support. So mm-hmm. with one, I'm working through lesson planning, and with another, I'm working through you know observational skills. Um, but it was really... Um, just, I, I mean, of course we could predict that we would see that variability, but I guess we're still, um, I, I was still surprised that even in sort of a homogenous, these are all graduate students studying to be teachers, right? right. It's like, yeah, but they're just as different as any other, you know, 10 people we might see. Yeah. Just a couple of the last questions. Do you, as from a parent's point of view, do you think a parent should just expect in this day and age that universal design for learning and differentiated instruction are just going to be a given, or they should just be a given in the classroom? That should be the standard. Uh, anything short of that is not, you know, effectively educating their children, whether they have a disability or not. Um, do you think, you know... Do you think parents should expect that? And if so, how do they? How would they respond to a teacher where they feel like, you know, I don't feel like you're differentiating instruction, especially a family that may not have the kind of exposure that you and I have had to, you know, national best practices around education and SWIFT and all these other, you know, um, kind of gold standard approaches? Um, well, I certainly recognize that schools aren't perfect and families aren't perfect and nothing is perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, and I certainly encourage and support parents and caregivers to be strong advocates in the school system. Um, at the same time, I see very little good coming from um, anything that's not collaborative between the school and the home. In fact, one of the people that uh, my own, um, I find Deborah Meyer's work to be pretty informative. And I remember hearing her speak one time and she said, and it's, Um, on the edge of what I understand, but she said, if a child looks um, at the parents and the teachers as not being on the same team, there's nothing we can do in schools that will make any difference at all. Hmm. Now, I'm not sure that 
I would say there's nothing we can do in schools that would make any difference. But boy, I haven't stopped thinking about that sentence for probably 20 years since I heard it um, when she was in New Hampshire once. Um, So I caution families, too, about being too um, forceful in expecting, um, you know, things to be other than they are, um, and instead to work with with teachers. Because I think in most instances, and I know there are exceptions for sure, but in most instances, teachers do want to make this work for kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, how... Should, teach, should families and caregivers and, and parents expect differentiated learning? Absolutely, right? I mean, anything else is prejudice, right? Yeah. To say, well, if you can't do this this way, right, we can't mm-hmm. help you here. That's mm-hmm. not the, the essence of public education or really education of any kind. Um, so, yes, we should expect it. Um, it's the right, I think, of um, all children and youth to have um, right-sized and right flavored and write everything mm-hmm. to learning um, but I but I think that we have to work collaboratively um, as teams um, families and schools together and I recognize from working in New England a lot um, I'm in rural Vermont right now quite often and um, there's a lot of variability in what schools have the capacity to deliver in terms of resources and opportunities for, for professional development mm-hmm. and turnover and administration and so you know as families, we have to be sensitive to that variability as well. Not that we settle for something less than um, quality instruction, but that we we work with and not against. Mm-hmm. So, no, that's great. And that's actually a great way for me to kind of start to wrap things up because we... Um had so covered so much ground. We could talk for a long time, but we should we should probably wrap it up for timing. I think um, you mentioned a couple of resources as we've talked, and this could be helpful for both educators and families. You mentioned Tomlinson's work, and I don't know if there was a particular book that you particularly lean on that you want to mention around differentiation. I love um, all of Tomlinson's work, but there's a book called Leading and Managing a Differentiated Classroom that I find especially helpful. It's really just a teaching reminder, I think, about what it can look like and how it should feel. Um, so she talks a little bit about not managing children's, um, not managing children, but managing classrooms and leading children in learning. Um, so the teacher is leader. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll, and certainly CAST um, mm-hmm. is the go-to place for universal design for learning, as I understand the world. Um, and um, I think that that's probably a good start. Certainly Swift also is always a good place for everything, mm-hmm. right? Right. Um, and, um, and it's been great to talk with you. Same here. And Susan, if people want to see any of your writing, I know there's at least one or two Swift blogs that you've written that are, that should be on the website. Is there anywhere anything else that you've written about differentiation? I know I used some of your work when I did my Who Cares About Kelsey project around our differentiation. Any other, any other work that you've done that's kind of public and out there that people can check out? Oh, I think the latest and greatest, or maybe just the latest, is... Uh-huh. Um, on the Swift blog. I think one is due to come out soon about my experience meeting Tina um, when I was a student teacher. So I'll leave it at that. But that was when I first learned about the um, importance of presuming competence. 
Great. Well, be sure to check out Susan's latest blog when it's published. I want to thank you so much for your time today, Susan. It was great. You covered so much ground. I can't wait to listen to it myself and <laughs> absorb it all more carefully. Um, and I just want to let our listeners know that you'll find, again, along with many other fantastic resources to assist you with inclusive and equity-based education and school-wide transformation, make sure you go to swiftschools.org. Tons of resources, including some of my films that I've done for Swift on that website. Um, and just to remind you all, Swift is a national K-8 center that provides academic and behavioral supports to promote the learning and academic achievement of all students, including students with disabilities and those with the most extensive needs, which is why we say all means all. So thank you so much for listening today and hope you check out more of the podcast.